Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we invite historians to vent their fury about history. The podcast where myth and misconception is written into the valley of death and left there to rot. I am your host, Paul Bavel, and I am here with my loyal co-host and charging cavalryman of truth, Kyle Glover. Hello! And this week, dear ragers, we are continuing our dive into iconic military engagements, and to do so, we have a returning rager. So furious, he's come back for a second time. So today, we welcome back historian, author, blogger, and YouTuber, and according to many of our guests, the nicest man in history... Josh Proven. Josh, welcome back to History Rage. I'm so happy that to, to be back in this the theatre of rage, Paul. Thank you for the Theatre <laughs> of Rage. There we go. That's a sub- subtitle yeah. for the podcast. Yeah, we should trademark that. Yeah. yeah. That, that's why I'm here, to, to give you sound bites. That's, uh, that's you. good. That's good. So we last spoke to you about a year ago. So in terms of books, blogs, YouTubing, just everything that you seem to be spending your time doing. How's it all progressing? It's it's all going to plan. Uh, right now, I am slowly losing my mind finishing my book about the Siege of Pensacola, which the Helion website assures us all is going to be published sometime towards the end of the year. Uh, that's providing I then finish doing this podcast and then get back to, to, you know, writing it. Uh, and they'll be listening to this if they listen to it at all way afterwards. So they don't know how much I've been slacking. Um, <laughs> the, uh, YouTube channel is, is ticking along nicely. We've got some fun guests coming up and I need to edit some of those. Uh, but if anybody wants to stop by and have a look, you know, and like, and subscribe as the industry saying mm-hmm. goes, then, I'll be very happy with that. And apart from that, I mean, I, I mean, I, I'm not just doing one book. It's very strange. I'm I'm technically in two edited collections as well, mm. chapter in two edited collections, and uh, another chapter in uh, Ian Dale's new book, which is also coming out in the autumn. I actually don't know how many publications I'm going to be in. It's, <laughs> uh, it's an embarrassment of riches. I'm very I'm very excited about it. <laughs> Good. Good. Well, we've got you here then, to, because you contacted us with with actually a, a couple of rages. So we've already in we're already in talks to do rage number three. But let's get rage number two out of the way first, because you've got a book to write. So you've been here before. You know what it's about. Would you please tell us what's pissing you off today? Well, I'll I'll, I'll tell you what's what's got me a little irked. Paul. <laughs> Irked. Maybe even vexed. Maybe even vexed, indeed. <laughs> Write a stinging letter to somebody. Um, is the idea that, first of all, it's twofold. First of all, is that the British somehow won convincingly the Battle of Balaclava during the Crimean War, and that 
Perhaps most importantly, there are some people out there in the great wide world who think Charge the Light Brigade was in any way successful. Okay. Okay. Right then. Now, we are complete beginners to, uh, to, not just to the Crimean War and the Battle of Balaclava, but to most of the Victorian period, to be perfectly honest. Um, many of our listeners are not military enthusiasts or Victorian enthusiasts, including us. So, before we get into the details of a battle, can you give us the background, the kind of history of what the Crimean War is and how, why it happens? Yeah, I'll do my best. The Crimean War should technically have just been another of the endless series of Russo-Turkish wars that had been grinding on since the 18th century, really. It started over a religious dispute about pilgrimages, uh, and it looked like the Russians and the Turkish were just going to have at it again. Only this time, the practically the entire uh, entirety of um, Western Europe, and to later on Southern Europe, got the willies, so to speak, about well, mm. the Russians trouncing the Turkish so bad that they would be able to turn a great deal of the eastern Mediterranean into a lake for the Tsar's fleet. So what you're looking at is basically, it's it's a flashpoint in the great game, so to speak. It's, it's where they actually come to blows over this rivalry between Britain, to some degree France, and the Russians. And it's mm. specifically to do with the decline of the political and military power of the Ottoman Empire in the 19th century, which was already declining by the time Napoleon stuck his boot in back in the late 18th century. But now it was the, it was properly the sick man of Europe, so the saying went. And people thought if... I mean, people were seriously worried that the Russians were going to achieve their long-held ambition of taking Istanbul and, basic, and controlling the Dardanelles, uh, from where... They could just they could put their war fleets through the Dardanelles from the Black Sea, where the where the fleet was stationed, and it was going to disrupt the balance of power. Balance of power. Many of uh, the viewers, I'm sure, will be familiar mm. with is the is is just what it sounds like. It was the pre let's not blow each other up with nuclear weapons agreement. It's that no one should have more power than the other one, and we have to sustain this. This was the reason why the British and the French got so agitated about it. They'd been working to try and shore up the Turkish, who were certainly an ally of the British, for a long time. And they couldn't allow, with already with the destabilization of the Turkish Empire due to the, the Greek revolt and other factors, hmm. they couldn't allow the Russians or even the chance of the Russians completely defeating the Turkish and pushing them out of the Balkans and the Dardanelles, and who knows what could have happened. That's why the Crimean War kicks off. There was a lot of angst about it. There, was, there had been this long period of, in quotes, peace, uh, which is illusory, to be honest, because there'd been fight, because there'd been large-scale wars in the, the, the Italian wars of unification for a start, the Carlist Wars in Spain. But... Um, between 1815 and 1852, people had this idea that that the great powers were not going to go back into a general European war like they had in the Napoleonic Wars, uh, that they were somehow, you know, that in an era of peace and progress, 
despite the fact revolutions were breaking out everywhere from 1848. <laughs> yeah. And like somehow, like somehow the Napoleonic Wars were the war to end all wars. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that, that in itself had bred this kind of strange wish, especially in Britain, for what they called a just war. You know, jingoism was on the rise, you know, and the, it's, it's so brilliantly actually summed up by the 1960s Charge of the Light Brigade movie introduction this feeling of that the British had not been in a just good war uh, like we had against Boney for, for, for too a, long, a very long, too long time. Damn it. It, yes. For too long. Okay. Exactly. We, uh, we haven't, we haven't righteously kicked anybody into touch yeah. for too much too long. Uh, we've just been, we've just been snapping up colonies and basically getting ourselves a terrible and how reputation. How are you going to increase <laughs> the value time. of your commission without a bloody good war? eh? Exactly. Exactly. A short war and a bloody one is how it was said. If that's the toast mm-hmm. that you go into war with. Dead men's boots. That is a whole other problem as well as the state of the British, is the relative armies involved here uh, after so long ostensibly at peace. But public opinion in Britain was for defending Turkey. You know, there was this, uh, the papers ran with it that Turkey is being is going to be smashed by the by the by the dreaded Muscovite horde, and you know the mm. this this cannot happen. You know, liberty and, and free trade must be protected, etc. And we can't let the Ruskies have too much power. Nicholas is a Tsar. Nicholas is a despot, and he can't be trusted. Meanwhile, on the Russian side, Tsar Nicholas was completely perplexed as to why France, Britain. Austria tried to be a peacemaker for a while. Why these why these nations were really seeming to want to have a go at him? Because as far as he was concerned, this was just what the Russians and the Turkish had been doing since mm-hmm. Catherine the Great's time. And he even had a, had a funny uh, exchange of letters with, I believe it was one of his chief ministers or his war minister. I for, actually, unfortunately, I've forgotten his name. Where basically the point is made that Every year, Britain uh, uh, occupies another section of India, and nobody cares. And the French occupy Rome for a full year, and nobody cares. But as soon as we try to muscle in in the Balkans or something like that, we're branded the the terrors of Europe. Uh, and you can yeah. kind of see the point. Yeah, it's hard, hard to disagree with him, you know. Well, there were legitimate uh, strategic concerns uh, alongside what seems to be a kind of a, just an excuse to show that Britain was still a sort of a mm. the world's policeman. But there, there were there is it's not a, exactly a good guy bad guy war, so to speak, unless you're the Turkish, in which case the Russians are absolutely the bad guy, and well. We they're very pleased that all of the Europeans want to come and fight with them. Okay, so what's the uh, what's the kind of first engagement where this kicks off into any sort of shooting war? Then it actually happens between the Turkish and the uh, and the Russians, and I believe it's in the Balkans. And strangely enough, the the Turkish beat off the Russians in the first engagements. Uh, and they hold, they hold a couple of key cities against the, the first Russian push to try and get 
basically down towards mm. Constantinople. And, sorry, Istanbul. Istanbul, not Constantinople. Nobody's business but the Turks. Nobody's yes. business but the Turks. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So we'll just pause a minute and let everybody do a little <laughs> song in their heads and then continue. Um, so, weirdly enough, the great fear that the Turkish were not up to defending themselves was immediately proved wrong. But by that time, you're already getting mass mobilization from the British and the French, who are the key uh, allies going into this. And they decide that the best way to win this war against Russia is to actually invade Russian soil. And at this time, the Russian empire spread across a vast swathe of territory, which included the Crimea, which is the little, mm-hmm. you may have heard of it. Um, it's just, it's been, I don't think it's been in the news for a no, while. It gets overshadowed by but, neighbors um, somewhat at the moment, doesn't it? At, at least, <laughs> at, at least out of the news for at least 24 hours, at least. Yes, perhaps. And this just seemed like too tempting a target, the way it just sort of low-hanging, literally yeah. on a map looks like low-hanging fruit for anybody wanting to attack it, especially a maritime, maritime powers like the French and the British. And they thought, well, that's just, that's just an easy target. So what we'll do is we'll land a very large expeditionary force right there and we will take it and we will seize the Black Sea Fleet, which is the thing that we're actually afraid of. That will safeguard essentially the flank of the Turkish Empire, the exposed area, the, the Balkans and and the Dardanelles, and, you know, basically Istanbul. And eventually the, the Tsar will just have to surrender, ask for terms because he can't get what he wants. That's the plan. The British send in a very large invasion force and uh, uh, one of Wellington's old friends, mm-hmm. uh, Lord Raglan, who, was, who you'll know as Fitzroy Somerset, any Napoleonic uh, fans listening. And he is joined up with the, with the French army, who have been busy fighting in North Africa for the last 10 or 20, 15 years. And I believe the, the initial... Uh, the initial French general is called Allard, and they land at a place called Calamita Bay in 1854. And the first battle is the Battle of Alma. You may have heard or be familiar with the name Alma from the billions of streets that are named after it across the country. If you ha- if you live on Alma Road, Alma Crescent, yeah. Alma Hedgerow, then that is where the name comes from. It's from the Battle of the Alma, the Alma River, which flows down into the Black Sea, uh, which the Russians had fortified and defended, and this was the first target of the British and French expeditionary forces. It was a very rugged battle. It was not very scientific at all. The British just decided they could march straight up the hill, attack the Russians, and blow them away. The French did it a bit more scientifically and managed to outflank the Russian positions. And eventually the Russians were just beaten around the head so much Mm. that they had to withdraw. But the British had taken very heavy and unnecessary casualties in doing so. It went went viral back home, the sight of the thin red lines marching up the steep slopes and the Highlanders Highlanders and the guards taking the redoubts and things like that. 
it was a victory for the infantry, for the ordinary soldier. Seemed like things were going well. This is the first battle of the Crimean War. Of the, I should say, well, the Crimean theatre of the Crimean War. Yeah. So at what stage does the Battle of Balaclava itself come about? Um, and what is the Battle of Balaclava? What, what, what happens there? The Battle of Balaclava comes about due to the Russians' need to attempt to break the siege of Sevastopol. Sevastopol is the uh, main port in the Crimean where the Black Sea fleet of the Russian Empire was anchored. It was their harbour. And this was the main objective of the Allied armies. They marched through the summer heat, suffering from cholera and heat stroke, uh, and besieged the place. And the siege was dragging on all the way into the autumn until you get into October, by which time the British had established their supply base at a tiny little uh, S-curve inlet and village, fishing village, called Balaclava. It was the main depot for the monstrous amount of supplies that was coming in through uh, the Mediterranean into the Black Sea. And there are famous photographs from 1855 uh, and 6 of the... just the tons of shot and crates and naval stores and how, how thickly packed the ships were into this tiny little puddle of a harbour. And it just as the Crimea was a easy-looking target to the British itself, Balaclava seemed to be, to the Russians, a, a nice target because it was kind of set back from the main British siege lines and... There wasn't a lot protecting it. It sat below a, a, a range of hills on top of which the British and the Turkish by this point, because the Turkish had now uh, had deployed assistance troops to it under one of their pashas, I believe it's Omar Pasha. And, and the Turkish were manning redoubts on top of these hills. Now, the, the thing about the siege of Balaclava is it's, it's not, a, it's not a siege where they cut off the entire town from help. Actually, one side of it was completely open mm-hmm. to assistance, essentially. And the, the Allies only cared about bringing their really heavy guns up on one side of it, blasting a hole through the very impressive fortifications of the town and making them surrender. However, that autumn, Prince Men- Menshikov, the, uh, the Russian commander-in-chief, had received a reinforcement in the shape of General Pavel Leprandi and what became known as the uh, Chorgun Field Force because it was immediately detailed down to the village of Chorgun, which is off to the east of um, Sevastopol. And they use this as a base, as a collection point. More reinforcements come into it. These are fresh troops. There's a lot of them. Uh, And their mission, Mm. I should say, is to go and attack Balaclava. And that's what Leprandi does on the 25th of October, 1854. The Battle of Balaclava is not something the British are expecting. The Russians absolutely get the drop on them. And so this is what the Battle of Balaclava is about. We, We know what the Battle of Balaclava is about, then. Aside from the obvious, what's going on? What's What's the plan on each side? The Russian plan is is very well thought out. It consists of 
several columns moving in a kind of an arc towards Balaclava. There's one long-ranging column that runs around to the east. There's one massive push against the heights with the redoubts on. And that is the one where the fighting kicks off at. The British, on the other hand, think they're secure with the redoubts up there. The port is sort of is is technically under the command of um, General Sir Colin Campbell, and he has a small force of troops there, including the Turks in the redoubts. There's also the 93rd Sutherland Highlanders, some Marines from the fleet. But that's all he has. It's not a great amount of men to have to defend this position with. And his plan, when they figure out they're under attack, is basically to try and defend the the port as, as long as possible so that the British and the French can bring in the rest of the army and help them out. Mm-hmm. What happens is that the Turkish resist the Russians for as long as they can. This was thought to be a very short amount of time uh, uh, because nobody really liked the Turks and they liked to sort of say, oh, they're not so hot, they suck, they don't know how to fight. They're, you know, Generally what the British do to their allies, they <laughs> talk them down. <laughs> However, they did actually hold their positions under heavy artillery fire for about an hour and a half, and then the latter half hour they came under attack directly by columns of the Azov Regiment who booted them out of the redoubts. This is in itself something of a a mythologized section of the battle. There are people who will say that the Turkish won the Battle of Balaclava for the British because it it did that weird thing sometimes where myths get so overcorrected that they become a myth in themselves. The Russians were held off for so long because they took so long to deploy and because they were firing from all sides with artillery to try and get the Turks to run away. Mm -hmm. When they actually attacked, the attack did not last very long once they actually got going. And that's all the British remembered was that as soon as the Russians attacked the Turkish ran away because there's too many Russians yeah. is the problem. And they've just done an hour and a half of utter bombardment and quite yeah. frankly, we're done. Yeah, exactly. Um, so they get, so they um, all run fleeing into the valley below chased, I should say by the Cossacks, which is again, you know, you want to run fast and they run into the town of Balaclava and there's lots of myths and hokum about, you know, of, they're all running away, they're all cowards, all the British sneering at them and spitting off them and camp women chasing them around with brooms and things like that. But actually they rally down there and they come and join the 93rd Highlanders who are, <laughs> who are beginning to uh, rally to, to defend the port because Colin Campbell's figured out, ah, uh, we've just lost all of the redoubts that are supposed to defend this place. <laughs> and, oh, look, the Russians are coming over them. As fate would have it, the Russians send the cavalry over first, probably just because, well, they are the fastest and they get up first and the infantry are taking a long, a longer time to get into position. They're spreading out across the redoubt, so why not send the cavalry forward and they can go right down and burn some stuff? Yeah, it's what cavalry do. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, uh, and this is where the Russian accounts differ to the British accounts, the Russians say that it was a whole bunch of Cossacks who went down towards Balaclava to basically burn the place to the ground. They didn't send any infantry down with them. The British say there were some dragoons and hussars with them. Either way, 
This is where you get the thin red streak tipped with steel, a.k.a. the thin red line quote from Mr. Russell of the Times, who was watching from the high ground above the town where uh, the, the British general staff had collected and sort of, you know, raising the spyglasses saying, oh dear, I do believe there's something wrong down in Balaclava. <laughs> there's a rum do involving some Ruskies. Yes. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of Russians on the, high, on the heights. Did you see that? All of a sudden. Damn Russians here in Russia, coming over here, <laughs> occupying their own land. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The, and so you have this, you have this uh, legendary br- part of British military history where the 93rd stand in the line on a, on a small knoll, and the reality is they are supported by some of the Turkish and some Royal Marines on the flanks. And Sir Colin Campbell, being Sir Colin Campbell, said, well, I didn't need to form a square. I knew the 93rd, and I didn't see the need. Um, so they basically sort of just emerged from a dip in the ground as the Russians were coming at them. Logically speaking, I think you have there's probably several explanations as to what happened, the most logical of which is that as soon as the Russians saw this line appear, they sort of had a go at galloping towards it to see if it would just run away. But when it started to shoot at them, they just curved off and rode off. Uh, yeah. And obviously that, that allowed the British to fire again. And that's probably the simplicity of it. I'm sure it felt much more dramatic to the people that were involved. And there are a lot of dramatic attack- accounts as to, mm. in, in minute details to what the 93rd did, it's so mythologized. There's actually several versions of this very simple event. Um, but nobody really cares what the Russians thought, and the Russians just blamed the Cossacks for getting out of hand. And they run back up to the the, the redoubts, which are nice, and you know the, the Russians are getting cozy up there now. But there's another body of cavalry being sent down. This one goes down a spur of high ground with more redoubts on it. These are more line cavalry, lances and hussars and stuff like that. There's a lot of them. This is commanded by the Russian cavalry general Risov. And they run into the um, the heavy brigade, the heavy cavalry brigade, the guys who wear red, Scots Grays, and Inniskilling Dragoons, Royals, and stuff like that. And they're commanded by a partly blind old general called James Scarlett, who, though very, who though is um, I don't know, ocularly challenged, we'll say, mm-hmm. is prop- made of proper cavalry stuff. And nobody gives him enough credit in the movie or in, in popular sort of legends of the battle. But as soon as he was appraised of the fact there's a massive amount of Russian cavalry wandering towards him, he just sort of he immediately had the trumpeters sound the uh, sound the assembly and the, the heavy brigade basically says, right, let's have at you. This is the charge of the heavy brigade, which is, is exactly what cavalry is supposed to do. Mm-hmm. They took an aggressive stance. They moved towards this big mass of Russian cavalry. The Russian cavalry stopped, big mistake, and the British cavalry charged. Because they had the initiative, they were able to control the pace of the fight. And so the the head of the brigade, which consisted of about four regiments, hit in a succession of blows, and the Russians, being just in one big mass, got beaten up quite badly though they did fight back and had to retreat because they had no momentum. Also, by this point, the British had brought up artillery 
yeah. they had had artillery up before that, but they they could only do so much with one battery, and they were now coming under shell fire, and the cavalry had to get out because cavalry aren't supposed to deal with with you know artillery, as we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> so, which leads us neatly on then to to we can't really talk about Balaclava without talking about the Charge of the Light Brigade. You know, like many other mythologized things in British military history, it's like there are films about it, there is bloody poetry about it, always with the bloody poetry. So, what is it? What was it actually looking to achieve, if anything? And what happened? Well, after the charge of the Heavy Brigade, the Russian cavalry retreat back up onto the heights because, well, the infantry aren't coming down. This My, my theory is roughly that Leprandi didn't actually want to take and occupy Balaclava. He wanted to burn it and control the heights so that the British would have to attack it again and incur heavy casualties like the head of the armor. That's just my theory. I'm sure everybody else has their mm-hmm. opinion. There's a lull now because the Russians are quite content to sit up on the high ground quite sensibly, and they're going to remove all the guns from the redoubts and pull them out and occupy them themselves. Meanwhile, Lord Raglan and now uh, and the nearest French general, who is General Pierre Bousquet, uh, are hurrying up infantry and cavalry to try and secure the low ground and the town in case the Russians should actually decide to come down and try and actually occupy it which they don't seem very interested in doing, but that's not the point. Raglan sees that the the Rushkis are, are taking the cannons out of the redoubts and hauling them away. There's a lot of books that will tell you that he felt particularly insulted by this because the Duke of Wellington had famously never actually lost a gun, and he was Wellington's man. Mm-hmm. And so he felt obliged to try and stop this. I'm not really sure how much that actually had a part to play in this because it was quite obvious that a lot of the guns would never be recovered anyway. And it was specifically a couple of redoubts closest to the British position that he was looking at with concern and thought he could do something about. He thought he could do something about, i.e. stopping the Russians taking the guns out of the nearest redoubts because the Light Brigade... Light Cavalry Brigade had not yet been uh, committed. They'd been late getting to the show with the heavy cavalry, and now they were just sitting down in the va- uh, just below in the valley, watching, sort of in observance, in case the Russians do something more. And they're fresh. They're very good. They're well mounted. They should be able to ride up to the high ground, mess around with the Russians, trying to pull the guns away and stop them. Yeah, that's the theory. That's what they're trying to achieve. That's what Ragdon wants them to achieve, uh, achieve, but it doesn't quite happen that way. Yeah. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A new year is full of surprises, but one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. 
Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take care of orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. So what does happen then? <laughs> so, uh, Raglan gives an order that the Light Brigade, well, in fact, the entire cavalry division, the, ca- the heavy and light, are meant to go forward and prevent the Russians from carrying away the guns. Now, in doing this, uh, is quite in, doing this is quite involved. He sees this from up on top of the his hill. There's a he's on a hill. There's a then there's a series of low ground. If you imagine in your head a series of sort of M's that the mm-hmm. Russians are sitting on, curving away in one direction, you'll kind of get an idea that there's a bunch of valleys in front of him and a bunch of spares sticking out of them. And on top of these spares are the redoubts. Yeah. The cavalry is supposed to ride up one of these spares and and stop them stop the Russians taking away our cannons, for heaven's sake. So he 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 turns to his 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 chief of staff, his adjutant general, uh, Richard Airley, and he uh, and he dictates a uh, a note an order, a written order to him, which it goes something along the lines of the the light, the cavalry will uh, advance rapidly or directly to the front and prevent the Russians from carrying away the guns. Yeah. This is perfectly obvious to anybody standing on the high ground which redoubt and guns he's talking about, but he doesn't take into account what can be seen from the valley below or the, or the relative competence and intelligence of the officers down there to understand and interpret his orders. Early writes this down supposedly verbatim, and I'm a little, I'm a little hazy on the, the exact details. Um, I think that it was meant to be given to a particular aide-de-camp, a particular galloper, but it was given instead to an officer called Edward Nolan, who was a a brilliant equestrian and one of those dashed thinking officers who like to write treatises all the time. Good Lord, academics. I, mean, I know, right? Um, you know, the type of man who's either be- going to become a general's pet or his worst nightmare. And Raglan famously wasn't so happy about thinking officers, so to speak, and that in itself is an exaggeration because it, it means something than what, different than what it, what it sounds like. He liked intelligence officers. He just didn't like them to write papers, um, mm. basically. And uh, Nolan had a lot of ideas about how cavalry should be used, and he liked to talk about it. Nolan takes the note, and he can see everything the generals can see, so he's also 
thinking that it should be quite obvious when you get down there what's what's what what the objectives will be. The problem is, first of all, that he doesn't like either of the two commanders he encounters when he gets down to the bottom of the valley. Nolan thinks that, first of all, Lord Lucan, who commands the cavalry division, is an idiot. And he also thinks that of uh, Lord Cardigan, who commands the, the Light Brigade. The, the two generals are actually related to each other, and they hate each other as well. Yep. Yeah, siblings will. <laughs> well, they're not that close in relation. I think it might be actually brothers-in-law, more like, or cousins or something like that. I forget. Mm. I, I do. I do apologize for being a little vague on that. I, my head is technically in the 18th century at the second. I, I but, think we're not requiring you to do a full family tree of Lord Cardigan here. That is <laughs> that is technical even by our standards. Right. Well, either way, they hate each other, and the, it is literally recorded that they spend the morning throwing insults at each other, uh, basically as they pass each other, uh, riding back and forth, you know, doing their duty. Uh, Cardigan is uh, famous. Is the famous guy in this? He's the he's the honorary colonel and a basically owner of the fifteenth um, or eleventh hussars, and he has decked them. He, he's famous for decking them out in these amazing uniforms at his own expense because he's so ridiculously wealthy. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's the fifteenth, and he. He, he's just the atypical stereotype of everything that Bernard Cornwall would make into a villainous officer in a sharp novel. Yes, he, he is Sir Henry Simerson with a <laughs> yes. tad more with a competence. Beard, with yeah. A beard. yeah, exactly. Um, and so Nolan gets down here already believing himself to be smarter and more competent than both of the senior officers he's going to be interacting with. He hands the letter, he hands the note to Lucan. Lucan looks at it, uh, uh, reads the order to read the order that <laughs> Raglan has dictated. And he sort of, and he doesn't know what to do with it. He's like, what, what guns? <laughs> Where? <laughs> um, because all he can see from down there is the guns at the other end of the valley. The way down the bottom of, I, the, the, I believe it's the North Valley, it's called. There are some unlimbered Russian artillery just sitting down there, um, just for security purposes, because that flank is slightly open. And he, he doesn't understand the order, because to him, that's not something cavalry should be doing. And he's he's tripped up he's tripped up a little bit because the order requires him to advance rapidly to his front, uh, whereas actually he would have needed to move to his front and then turn and go up go up a slope to get to the actual redoubts mm. he's supposed to be attacking. And so there's a delay, and he doesn't know what to do. He tries, to, I believe, he tries to query with Nolan what what we're talking about here and there's a bit of a rigmarole and famously Nolan is supposed to have lost his temper very unprofessionally in the face of two field officers by the way and flinging his arm out behind him as we all sometimes do when we know something that we're gesturing at and but don't really care if the other people know exactly what we're talking about because we think they should know he says there my lord 
there are your there is your enemy and there are your guns and uh, and fatefully he is actually pointing directly down the valley to the the bad battery we'll call yeah. it <laughs> um cardigan to his credit brings up lucan and very quietly just sort of says uh, my lord I'm, I'm not i'm not going to counteract an order but it is i hope you know it is against every principle of war for cavalry to attack artillery without by just charging at them and lucan is apparent is supposed to have said i know it but lord lord raglan will have it so that's it and that's how it kicks off yeah the division goes forward into the in quotes valley of death and i still don't believe that this actually happened but 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 it's 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 in the accounts and nobody really denies that it did happen the first shot out of the a russian gun is a shell which explodes in front of the light brigade just as nolan rides out in front of it waving his arms around and kills him dead first shot yeah now people think he had realized as the brigade got in motion that they were they were they were on the wrong course and that Lucan or Cardigan had misunderstood the order or had just misunderstood and was trying to correct it. But he was killed with the first shot. He was the first of the light brigade yep. to die. And therefore he took whatever he knew to his grave. And they charge and are pretty much smacked into, yeah, they, into they legend. Go- yeah, exactly. They get smacked into legend. I mean, they don't lose, they don't, like, man for man, they don't get destroyed. They lose about 120, 150 men or something out of 600 men. But the horses are devastated. They mm. lose hundreds of horses. And that basically renders them useless. Not a cavalry unit anymore. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Not only do they have to go in, but they have to retreat out of it again because once they get in there and they reach the gun line, they do overrun the guns and they actually do hit the cavalry behind them, which are Cossacks and, and lances and things like that. And being Cossacks, they run away. Um, they get all the way, to, they get way into the rear of the Russian position in little knots of just belligerent British, Victorian, mustachioed cavalrymen. And then realize, ah, oh, well, we have, to go, we have to go back now because, well, what else is there to do? Literally, Cardigan gets through the gun line, stops, turns his horse around and rides back. That's all he does. And if it wasn't for uh, the brigade of the French cavalry, the Chasseurs d'Afrique on the left flank, which are committed by General Bosquet, mm-hmm. they would have lost a lot more men because they actually do what cavalry is supposed to do, and they go up and they get the drop on a Russian battery and they chase them all off the left flank of the ridge. Yeah, And then they just sort of blithely wander back with a kind of relaxed Gallic shrug when the Russians come and return. Meanwhile, the light brigade are just pell-mell trying to get out of the valley. It's disastrous, really. It's, it's, it not only, it's not even disastrous in the sense of like casualties, but disastrous in the breakdown of communication to the logic mm. of the officers in command that allowed it to happen. It's, it's a great military disaster, which somehow gets glorified into a, an amazing feat of arms. Okay, so 
Let's throw the comment in there, actually. The, the, actually, when you say that, it's a great military disaster that's uh, turned around into this legendary thing. I remember that Chris Kempsell said that that's basically what happens with Dunkirk. <laughs> this is an absolute rout, but we just pull the, the, you know, the, the achievement out of it. There's, there's been quite a lot of finger-pointing and blame-gaming for the charge of the Lab Brigade, but um, who do you personally hold responsible for it all going as it, as it, as it did? Tits north, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I try, I try to shy away from, uh, from apportioning blame. Hey, you sent this uh, question. You're going to answer it, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, my my, my re- my rage is more about the fact that there are people who believe that because they reached the gun line and overran it and put the enemy behind it to rout, that it was a successful charge, despite the fact they charged at the wrong guns, did not securely capture them, did not even spike a single one of them, and all got shot to pieces on the way back. <laughs> and if that's your example of a successful operation, I hate to think <laughs> what a defeat looks like, but... Because the the blame game is very complicated. Is Raglan wrong for giving what would appear to be quite a vague order? Because it's not an order, for instance, that the Duke of Wellington would have written. He would have been very specific about what the cavalry was supposed to do. Not this sort of, you must attack these guns, but not telling them which guns mm-hmm. or in which direction. Is is that his? Is that where it starts? Technically, yes. Is it Early's fault for just writing it down verbatim and not adding something in about which guns it was or querying which guns it was? Mm-hmm. Is it Nolan's fault for losing his temper in front of superior officers, which he really hadn't, which nobody should have been doing? <laughs> no soldier is supposed to speak that way to a superior officer. And then uh, basically getting the cavalry to advance uh, because he sort of called out Lucan as a, are you basically, are you going to, are you going to attack then sort of thing? Or is it indeed Lucan's fault for just doing what this idiot told, told him to do and not sending a galloper back up the hill to confirm what he's supposed to attack? The fault is the breakdown in that chain of communication. I think every yeah. officer has some part of the blame. Weirdly enough, Cardigan comes out with the least, I would say, because all he did was do exactly what he was told to do, reach the guns, and then, you know, infamously he does then technically abandon his men by just riding back out of it. But if you ever blame Cardigan, as I actually overheard someone do once, he, he <laughs> they were passing by and they said something like, you know, they, they, they wrote a poem about him for getting 600 men killed all wrong. All he did was literally do what he was told to do. And he's the only one who actually questioned <laughs> questioned the order to advance. Um, Lucan actually as well, to be fair, once the artillery started pounding them at the very start of the charge, he actually stopped the heavy brigade because they were both going in. Mm. And he said, they've sacrificed the light brigade. They're not going to have the heavy. Weirdly enough, Given the destruction and confusion the crazy light brigade <laughs> caused in the Russian ranks, it's an interesting question to ask whether or not the heavy brigade coming in behind them might have actually done more damage. But this is it's, yeah. it's one guy giving the blame to one guy. I I don't actually think it's possible. Yeah. But like you say, it's it, it's not this great, glorious victory that we paint it. 
to yeah. to be. You know, it's a great. You you got to take your hat off to anybody who t- partakes in that charge. You know, oh yeah, it is it is great. It is glorious. It's everything that being a cavalry officer is about. But you doesn't Did really achieve anything. Yeah. No, I mean, no. <laughs> it's like this is the strange thing about it. This is this is this is the great reputation of the Victorian cavalry of Wellington's cavalry, for heaven's sake, because he he had this thing about them that they didn't that, that they didn't know when to stop, and they were always ready to charge at anything. He used to say, um, "But there is there is a way, you know." Lots of cavalrymen, like Nolan, knew that the actual job of cavalry is yeah. You have to have dash. You have to have attack. You have to be able. You have to be willing to ride into the guns if necessary. But actually, you have to be even more careful than an infantryman with with cavalry because they're very powerful but very vulnerable at the same time. Mm. And as the French showed, there's a way to do this, <laughs> and it's not what the light brigade did. Yeah. I mean, we, we've proved back since medieval times that a straight, unblanched cavalry charge can be stopped. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you've got a good, probably, four, five hundred year history of stopping cavalry, even if you're English, stopping cavalry right in its tracks. Absolutely. And honestly, the thing that I think really allowed the Light Brigade to do so much damage to the Russians in the valley once they hit the guns... It's just that the Russians didn't know what on earth was happening. <laughs> These um, crazy red guys have turned <laughs> up on horses. That's not what cavalry should do. <laughs> it's like, yeah, exactly. They were like, okay, they'll stop now. But, well, they'll definitely stop now. <laughs> <laughs> so they, there's, there's got to be a, a lot more to this battle than that one mental charge that uh, that we talk about. So what is the battle's outcome and what actually really contributes to that outcome? You know, weirdly enough, the, the charge of the Light Brigade is the last physical action of the Battle of Balaclava. After that, the, both sides stop fighting, and the Russians brace themselves for an attack because by this point the British and French infantry have come up, um, but nothing happens during the night, and they're left in control of the high ground. Hmm. The Battle of Balaclava is really weird because, first of all, actually... There is not more than I think five to six hundred casualties on the entire day. That's casualties general. Um, yes, we're not talking fatalities there. You're talking wounded, yeah. uh, just combat ineffective. Mm, exactly. Wow. Um, and it can twenty five percent of those are the light brigade. <laughs> something like that with the British. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and the it, it consists of literally four basically four phases that are sort of weird disconnected actions, which at the end of the day, if you really count up the str- what is strategically being taken or lost, the Russians have all the guns and all the redoubts on the high ground and can now threaten the British line of communications to the siege lines at Sevastopol. And that's why I argue that it's either inconclusive, which a lot of people would agree with, or actually it's a strategic Russian victory. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the British don't get out of the area, but they're, they're nowhere near as in control of it as they were at the start. Absolutely. It's going to be a real pain now having to watch their flank through the winter 
getting supplies between Balaclava and Sevastopol because the Russians are just wandering around up on the heights wherever they want. So just to wrap things up and to flip things a little bit, um, how does the Battle of Balaclava work out for the Russians? Are they successful? Well, yeah, uh, I, I think they are very successful in terms of what Leprandi probably meant to do. No, he didn't get to burn all the supplies or properly mm. cut off the supply chain, but he did He did achieve something by it, much more than the British did, which all the British did was prevent him from capturing Balaclava for however long he would have captured it, because I really don't think he would have actually tried to fight a battle to defend it down on the ground. I think he would have burned the place. Mm. And... This is actually followed up by the Battle of Inkerman on the 5th of November, 1854, where the Russians try again to really, really put pressure on the British siege lines, which, if they had won that battle, might have contributed to the end of the siege, for all I know. However, it didn't go as well, the Battle of Inkerman, as the Battle of Balaclava did for them, because of varying factors not least of which is the fact that the generals weren't allowed to command the British army, and mostly it was down to captains, colonels, and a couple of senior officer, divisional officers who actually kind of knew what they were doing, and the British infantry just being so tough in a defensive position, and the weather being so bad that the Russians couldn't coordinate properly. It's called the soldiers' battle, famously, mm. because basically it was won by small pockets, of ordinary soldiers and battalions and companies and things like that winning Victoria Crosses. It's all very heroic. It was meant, from the Russian perspective, to be a greater balaclava. You know, we're actually going to properly cut off the British side of the siege of Sevastopol, but it didn't work out. That leaves things in a status quo. It allows the siege to continue drag on endlessly and through mm. the t- terrible winter months of 1854. So the success of Balaclava was meant to be built on, but it wasn't. They were The Russians were not able to do so. So Inkerman is another story. The rest of the war is another story. But Balaclava was a brief sort of shining... There was some hope that they might be able to break the siege once when they actually mm. took the heights above Sevastopol. Uh, Balaclava. How, how does it all end? You know, we're, we're, what's the end of the Crimean War look like? What brings that about? The end of the Crimean War it occurs uh, the next year when, well, late in the uh, next year, I should say, uh, when the um, the British and the French, well, and specifically the French, I should say, secure a vital section of the Russian fortifications after brutal, brutal assaults on the massive entrenchments of Sevastopol, causing massive casualties, especially to the British, who failed to take their objectives repeatedly during the assaults the next year. And the Russians abandon Sevastopol shortly thereafter. They don't surrender. They they create a bridge of boats, and the army, you know, sort of the battered army, the defenders of Sevastopol, get out. Mm. The Black Sea f- fleet is sunk and the ruined town is left in the hands of the Allies and shortly thereafter they come to a peace agreement because, well, the reason the war began is no longer the reason it's going on. And yeah. also the death of the Tsar I believe occurs just before the end 
uh, of the war, or just shortly thereafter, which also contributes to the to the end of the fighting. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much. That, that has given us a massive insight, as well as the rage, into in, in, just into a conflict that I knew very, very little about. I mean, you know, Crimean War, it was against the Russians, and there was a charge in it. Uh, and that, <laughs> that is broadly my knowledge of the Crimean War. So thank you very much for uh, for opening my eyes to that. My pleasure. It's a it's a very interesting um, conflict to to look at, and there's a lot of mythology about it, which is always a lot of fun. Yeah, and a, a lot of things to chew over because of the rich amount of first-hand accounts of newspaper reporting. Famously, mm. was the first war to be de- covered in detail by news services, and uh, because of all the great photographs taken between 1855 and 1856 by Roger Fenton. Yeah. I will look, I will look into some of those because that's the, that's piqued my interest in there. But uh, thank you very much. And we must get you back on to uh, Rage at the Alamo. Which I believe <laughs> yeah. is one that uh, is, is burning away at your soul. So we will, uh, we, we will arrange that in the future. Yes, we will, we, will, we will come back and we will alienate all the American listeners. Uh, probably not all of them. <laughs> all but three of them. But, you know, if they're still here after our 4th of July episode, then I don't think they're going away. You know? Excellent. So if you'd like to know more about Josh's work, then you can start by uh, buying the excellent book uh, Wild East. And at the time that this goes out on public release, God willing, you will have had the new one out. So what's the new one called? The new one is called Every Hazard and Fatigue, Siege of Pensacola, 1781. Okay, and we'll have links to those uh, in the History Rage bookshop and in the show notes. And you can and should also subscribe to the excellent YouTube channel Adventures in History Land. And finally, you can follow Josh on Twitter at Land of History. But once again, thank you very much for bringing yet more rage to our sainted podcast. Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode and we'd really appreciate any reviews you could leave for us with Apple Podchaser or Amazon. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually, I am at Paul Bavel. And I am at Kyle G History. And if you subscribe to us on Patreon, you're really helping us meet the cost of podcasting. Your £5 per month will get you early episodes, entry into all of our prize draws, the invite to put questions to future guests, and, of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash history rage. But until next week, from all of us here, stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.